Last week, we began to hear about Paul's rejection of the false teachers that were rising to prominence in the church at Ephesus. Paul warned Timothy about them, and he commanded Timothy to remain at that church and to stay the course in order to defend that church against those who would lead them astray. And although our text this morning really is chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, I'd like to read verses 6 and following in order to help give context to what we're reading today. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. It reads, Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask his blessing as we hear it this morning. Our Father in heaven, we pray that today as we come before you and seek your face through your word, we pray, Lord, that you would be pleased to open our understanding. Lord, we humble ourselves now to bow the knee to what you have to teach us. We acknowledge, Lord, that your scripture is your holy word. Just as though you were in the room communicating verbally to us, we, we receive this word as a command from the mouth of Christ. Lord, we pray that today you would give understanding to a difficult topic, one that is challenging to our understanding. And Lord, I pray that you would give wisdom and clarity. May my words be accurate and truthful. May they be compassionate and passionate as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today what we're going to do is quite simply ask four questions to this text. And the purpose of that is to help us understand the law that is referenced here in this passage. So these are the four questions that we will seek to answer. First, what is the law? Or specifically, what is the law that Paul is speaking about here? Secondly, why does Paul list these particular sins that are mentioned in this chapter? Third, why is the law not for the just? And third, what does it mean to you I'm sorry, fourth, what does it mean to use the law lawfully? Let's begin first with the question, what is the law? Or to be more specific, what is the law that Paul is referencing in this passage? There are a lot of laws that exist in our world. Some of the laws that exist in the New York Penal Code, for example, are related directly to biblical commands. The Bible says, thou shalt not kill. New York tells you, you shall not kill. There are some laws in our country that differ based on location. For example, when I first moved to New York about a week after arriving, I got pulled over and received a ticket for speaking on my cell phone while driving. Now, I said to the police officer, I'm sorry, I didn't know that was a law because where I live in Kansas, it is not illegal to speak on the phone while you're driving. And the police officer said to me, that is a lie. It's illegal everywhere in the United States. He was wrong, but I didn't argue the point. There are some laws that are so bizarre and so outdated that nobody actually acknowledges them or operates according to them. For example, in Arizona, it is illegal for a donkey to sleep in a bathtub. In Delaware, it is illegal to sell dog hair. 
In Missouri, it's illegal to wrestle a bear. And in Kentucky, it's illegal for a woman to marry the same man four different times. So I guess, you know, three strikes and you're out. Um, all of these laws precipitated from some event, some cause. And so you have to wonder what in the world is going on that would produce a law such as this. Paul begins verse 8 in our text by making a very simple declaration of good. He says, we know that the law is good. The law that he is referencing here is specifically the law of Moses. He tells us that it is good, meaning that at its core, the law itself is excellent. It was given by God for good purposes, and it is without corruption. The law is good. The law of Moses was given at Sinai to a particular people for a particular time. It was never imposed on anyone outside of the Old Covenant people of Israel. And Paul refers to various aspects of the law as shadows that gave a murky foretelling of what was to come, but the substance is found in Jesus Christ. So if you look back at verse 7, one thing that you'll notice is that the false teachers that Paul is speaking against desire to be what? They desire to be teachers of the law. The Mosaic Code seems to be the primary tool that they were using to distort the gospel in the church at Ephesus. Yet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul diagnoses their grasp of the law in this way. He says these false teachers are, quote, without understanding either of what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So what is the law that Paul is speaking about? It is the entirety of the Mosaic law that was given to the nation of Israel at Sinai. And it was being distorted by the false teachers in the church in order to draw people away from the truth of the gospel. Our second question today is, why does Paul list these particular sins? One of the things that you will find is that there are various lists in the New Testament of sins that will prohibit someone from entering the kingdom of God. And each list has specific sins that are mentioned, but none of those lists are identical. Paul makes this statement. He says, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but, and then he mentions a variety of sins that will not permit someone to be uh, that, that requires someone to be under the law. Out of all of the entire grab bag of possible moral perversions available, why list these? The best way to answer that question is by asking another question. What is the most famous summary of the law of Moses called? I'll give you a hint. It's got ten parts. What is that called? Of course, it's the Ten Commandments, or what theologians like to call the Decalogue, because theologians like fancy words. Let's look at all of these sins that Paul mentions, and what I'd like to show you is how they relate directly back to the list that we call the Ten Commandments. However, in order to see it the most clearly, what I'm going to do is actually start at command number five, which is honor your father and mother. And what we're going to see right in the middle of verse nine is that the law exists, quote, for those who strike their fathers and their mothers. Now, already you may notice that this is not identical to the writing of the Ten Commandments. However, what Paul is going to do is he's going to give you an extreme example of how you can break each of these commandments. In each of these categories of sin, you will see that they relate not one-to-one, -one, but in an expressive way of those things commanded under the Old Covenant law. The command is to honor your father and mother, 
But few things could be more dishonoring to your father or mother than to respond to their commands with physical violence. If my child hears my voice and I tell them to do something and they hit me in the face, they are dishonoring God by disobeying what he has called us to do. Then he moves directly from that fifth commandment onto the sixth commandment and says, thou shall not kill. Now Paul says that the law is for, quote, murderers. And this word is probably intentionally used to reference those who have a tendency not just towards killing an individual, but towards multiple murders. That's the way that the word is being used in Greek. Those who intentionally and maliciously take the life of other human beings that were made in the image of God. And then he moves to the seventh commandment, which is do not commit adultery. However, this commandment was widely understood and broadened to speak not only to adultery in a marriage relationship, but to the wider scope of sexual immorality. Here he says that those who have committed sexual immorality are under the law. And he even focuses in more carefully and speaks of men who do homosexual acts. For those who in our world are trying to excuse sexual sin, which is most of the people in our culture, and those who claim that homosexuality is not condemned by the Scripture, which are unfortunately many people who claim Christ, notice you don't have to look any farther than this passage to see that both of these things are paralleled with other sins that are grievous to the heart of God. The Eighth Commandment is do not steal. And in verse 10, Paul gives one of the most extreme examples possible and speaks of those who enslave others. Now, there are many things that you can steal in this world, but to rob someone of their freedom, to take them from their home or their homeland, and to force them into some kind of labor is roundly condemned as an abomination against God and one of the most extreme forms of theft. In these days, the most common form of being enslaved was either in warfare or you would go find a small child and kidnap them and then force them into labor in your own home. That's probably what he has in view in this text. It is stealing. It is breaking the command. The ninth commandment is that you must not bear false witness against your neighbor. Here we see that Paul communicates that by referencing both liars and perjurers. Now, what you may notice here is that's where the list pretty much ends, and it doesn't have anything that relates directly to the 10th commandment, and there are many questions about why that doesn't exist on this list, but I think there is a clear reason for that. I think the reason that Paul doesn't speak about envy in this place is because everything else is mentioned. He says, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, so everything falls into that category. However, Later on in this book, we are going to see that Paul references extensively the 10th commandment as these people who are false teachers in their midst have no greater desire than money. And he speaks more clearly than anywhere else in the entire Bible about the heart of those who are teaching in relation to money. So he doesn't mention it here, but let's not be fooled. This is certainly brought in later on in the chapter. So let's go back now to verse 9, and what I'd like to do is make our way backward and see where we see those first four commands. You will notice that there is no mention of the fourth commandment, which is to keep the Sabbath day. And there is a reason for that that's very simple, and that is because the old covenant practice of keeping the Sabbath has no place in the new covenant worship of God. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Sunday is not the Sabbath. Sabbath just means seventh. Saturday is still the seventh day. 
We do not worship the Lord on the Sabbath. We do not have a Sabbath day as Christians. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. The Lord's day is Sunday. Paul does not link any sinful activity to working on Saturdays because as Christian, there is no regulation and there is no limitation in regards to the Sabbath day. But what about the first three commands? How are they presented here? What I want you to do is see how Paul expresses them, and you will notice that each of these have an, an adjective connected to them that reveal the heart of a person. He says, they are lawless and disobedient, the ungodly and sinners, the unholy and profane. The first three commandments that are given by God in the ten are all dealing with the way we honor the Lord. You shall have no other gods before me, you shall make no graven images, and you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. And what you'll notice here is that the three adjectives and the three titles that he gives to those who are under the law are people who are breaking these laws in the broadest sense possible. Disobedience is, at its very core, the placement of self above God. You shall have no other gods before me. By disobedience, you are revealing that you yourself are putting your place above his own. The root of all sin is idolatry. And when he uses the word profane, it is an indication that not only base immorality is taking place, but profane also speaks to verbal defiance. That's why in English we draw our word profanity from the word profane. Admittedly, these first three commands are overlapping as ways that people are lawbreakers, but that's because anyone who breaks any of these first three are necessarily breaking the others. So why does Paul list these particular commands? He does so because he is speaking about the Mosaic law and revealing that the same people who are teaching these things in a misunderstood way are attempting to teach them while meanwhile being condemned by them. Now, you'll notice that in verses 10 and 11, he says, and they do whatever is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Doctrine includes moral instruction and moral living. But those things are subsequent to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. So the question is, what is the gospel that these people were distorting? The gospel of Jesus Christ is what we heard about in the testimonies this morning, that we were going our own way, sinning in various forms, violating the laws that God has given to reveal his moral character, and in doing so, we have made ourselves rebels and enemies against God. We are sinners by nature, and we are sinners by choice. But in love, God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to save sinners like you and me, that bad people, wicked people, ungodly people, sinners, lawbreakers that he mentions here. We can be saved by grace because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sinners like you and me at the cross. There he received the punishment of men, but much more so experienced the wrath of God as a payment for sin that we have committed. He himself had never done anything wrong, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. He was a perfect individual perfectly perfect, never once disobeying any command of the Lord. And Jesus Christ died so that he might give that righteousness to sinners like you and I. And if you will only believe in Jesus Christ, believe that his death was of value to save you from your sin, believe that he raised on the third day, and believe that he is alive today to be your Savior, then you will 
be saved. That is the gospel. That is what they were distorting with the law. The third question that we want to consider today is, why is the law not for the just? One of the greatest challenges of the Bible reader is to understand how a new covenant believer relates to the old covenant law. In this passage, Paul makes the argument that the law is not for certain people. In particular, he says that it does not apply to those who fall into the category of being, quote, just. This is a reference to those who have been saved, people who have been redeemed, people who have been forgiven. It is not for those who have been justified by the grace of God. In other words, the law is not for Christians. But what in the world does he mean by that? What I want to do for the next few moments is clarify this by showing you three ways that this same author, Paul, reveals to us that those who are saved are not under the law. First, he tells us that we are not condemned by the law. One of the terrifying realities that we learn from Scripture is that we are all guilty of breaking God's commands. And according to James, breaking one law makes us guilty of the whole law. And there is no statute of limitations on God's law. Meaning, if we are judged by the law, then we stand guilty and condemned without hope. The gospel is not that bad people realize they are bad people and then decide to become good people. It's not that God simply tells lawbreakers like you and I to become law keepers. Here's how Paul explains it in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its what? With its legal demands in reference to the covenant law. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. How is it that Romans 8 verse 1 can teach us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? It is because the law no longer condemns us. Our criminal record in the courtroom of heaven would be a mile long. But the cross of Jesus Christ paid for every single law that you have broken in order that you might no longer bear the weight of the law on your shoulders. We are free from it because the legal demands against you were set aside. And the only way that that could happen was having them nailed to the cross. Jesus took our condemnation so the amount of broken laws could never condemn you. You are not under the law. Secondly, you are not made righteous by the law. One thing that every person needs more than anything else in this world is righteousness. Without it, you have no hope of standing before the throne of God at the judgment seat. One of the terms that Christians often throw around and do so incorrectly is the term legalism. Well, what is legalism? Just break down the word and you will arrive at the concept of law, legalism. Legalism is attempting to gain righteousness through the law. It could be a biblical law or it could be a man-made law. That's why even good things like Bible reading or church attendance or giving can be done legalistically. Legalism is a matter of the heart being motivated by law rather than heart being motivated by grace. The Pharisees were masters of legalism, and they would argue relentlessly about the minutiae of the law, 
so that they would outwardly conform to every jot and tittle in the Bible. And the greatest of the Pharisees in terms of his outward conformity was Paul. Remember just a few weeks ago, we heard about his resume from Philippians chapter 3, where he stated that in relation to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. Shocking statement. Nobody could point out a single breach of the law in his life. But listen to how Paul follows that up with the very next few sentences. Philippians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. He says, As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. This righteousness that he perceived previously that he had gained under the law is now considered rubbish, garbage, trash, worthless. But how does this happen? How does righteousness come to him? How can Paul be found in Christ? He says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Not having righteousness from the law. The law does not produce in him any righteousness, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, that depends on faith. Christian, your righteousness your standing before God, your list of goodness does not come from anything produced by your actions, by your obedience, by your acceptance of the law and adherence to it. You are still a sinner and you are only made right with God by the righteousness that is given to you as a gift from God. It was possible for the, if it was possible for the law to make you righteous, then Jesus would not have needed to come at all. This is what Paul's getting at in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, when he says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Jesus Christ died for no purpose. If the Bible ever says something would nullify the purpose of Jesus' death on the cross, then you should look carefully at that, and you will realize here, he says, if you could be made righteous through the law, Jesus had no purpose in dying on the cross. The law is not for you in the sense that it gives you no standing with God. It does not earn you anything. Your righteousness comes to you by grace and grace alone. Jesus gave you righteousness so no amount of law-keeping could add one ounce of righteousness to you. You are not under the law. Thirdly, you are not governed by the law. This past summer, we had an intern that served at North Shore Baptist Church, our sister church over in Bayside, Queens, and there were several occasions where he came here to help us with various projects, and I was able to teach a class for them on systematic theology. And it was interesting that this uh, young man, I don't know which one, but he was part of a Native American tribe, and as such, he had a license plate on his car that allowed him to do things that I cannot do. For example, when going through a toll booth, you know the ones, he did not have to pay any tolls. And when looking for parking in the city, most of the regulations that would apply to uh, most of the people in this room do not apply to him. So if he was given a parking ticket, he was able to simply send it back in with his license plate number, realizing that it provides him freedom from certain laws and regulations. His identity means that he is governed differently. Now, as a Christian, you are not governed by the Old Covenant law. There are many ways that this is displayed in the New Testament, but for example, I just want to show you a couple. First of all, notice in Ephesians chapter 2, 
verses 14 through 15, it says this. Well, first, Paul is revealing here what's going on between the the people of Israel and the Gentiles. Remember, there had been a strong rift between the two that had existed for generations and even millennia. And here he says of these two disparate and separated groups of people that there is a dividing wall of separation that has now been broken down in Christ. And he writes of that, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Here's the point. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. How does he do it? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. What happened to the law for those who trust in Christ? It was abolished. It was canceled. It no longer has jurisdiction over your life. You are categorically shifted out of its control. But if that is the case, what are you shifted to? What governs you now? Paul anticipated the question often when he would write about this. For example, in Romans chapter 6, he tells the people in verse 14, you are not under the law, but under grace. And Paul knew that the people would consider that to be a license to sin. So the very next words off of his pen were, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. You'll notice in your English Bible there is an exclamation point because that is an intensive way of writing. He then goes on to explain that we are no longer slaves to sin but slaves to righteousness. And this is a way that as a Christian we honor God. Not because of external pressure to conform to a legal code, but because of an internal love that compels us to follow Christ more and more each day. The main issue that caused Paul to write the letter to the Galatians was that they were experiencing false teaching in their midst that came to them and commanded them that they follow some of the old covenant laws. In particular, The people there were focusing in on the law of circumcision. But Paul writes and warns them vehemently against being governed by the law. And in Galatians uh, chapter 5, verse 3, he says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. If you are governed by the law, you are required to keep all of it. The food laws, the mold laws, the beard laws, the sacrificial laws, the feasts, the festivals, the fasts, all of it. But these do not govern us. Even for those who argue that we are only required to follow the moral laws, you have already broken them and you are thereby disqualified. But thanks be to God, they are not over you. Instead, you have something else that drives you, namely the Holy Spirit. Paul continues his argument down in Galatians chapter 5, verse 18 by saying, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Two categories of people. You are either under the law or you are led by the Spirit. And if you're being led by the Spirit, you are led into obedience. Jesus has fulfilled the law on your behalf. Therefore, the old covenant law does not govern you. Christian, you are not under the law. It does not condemn you. It does not purify you. It does not govern you. That is what Paul means when he says the law is not for the just, which leads us to question number four, which is, what does it mean to use the law lawfully? It would be really easy to just walk away after question three and the answers that I just gave and then to say, 
well, then the old covenant law must have no value. Why even read the Old Testament if there's no bearing on my life from what it says? Back to 1 Timothy. That's why Paul says in verse 8, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The word translated here as lawfully is only found in one other place in our entire New Testament, which is in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. And it says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. That little phrase, according to the rules, is the same word in Greek that is translated here as lawfully. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, he is telling us that the law is, must be used in accordance with its purpose, within the framework that God gave it. God gave the law for a reason, and how is that supposed to relate to us? Paul says if we use it appropriately, then it does have value. So, just as we considered three ways that we are not under the law, I now want to share with you three ways that the law can be used lawfully according to the same author, Paul. The law, first of all, explains moral boundaries. The character of God is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, the moral standards that God has for mankind are unchanging. The law says, thou shall not kill. But was it wrong to kill before God gave that rule to Moses? Of course it was. Remember back to Genesis chapter 4, the first brothers in the world? You have Cain, you have Abel, and these two have a relationship that eventually ends up with Cain killing his brother. Do you remember what God said to him before that event? He said to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. What sin was God talking about? The sin of killing his brother. The law did not create God's moral standards, but it does, it does help our fallen mind see God's standards more clearly. Paul explains this very idea in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. He says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if, I had not, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. The false teachers that Paul was condemning in 1 Timothy have some awareness of the law, but they seem to have ignored the moral boundaries that it reveals. And we see here in the very first chapter, as well in much of chapter 5 and 6, that these false teachers were wicked men who had determined to live in open opposition to God's character. When understood correctly, the law can give moral clarity to the standards that God has for his creation. Secondly, the law reveals our sin. After COVID, going to the store is sometimes a very different experience than it was before COVID. It's like almost everyone in the world has seemingly forgotten how to look in public. Now, I'm cool with that because I forgot about that a long time ago. But it seems that uh, an inordinate number of people that I see at the store have their hair unkempt or are comfortable walking around in uh, slippers. Um, by the way, one of the laws that exists in the state of New York is that you are not allowed to wear slippers after 10 p.m. in public. I, but I'll just say that there's a lot of people that have messed up lipstick or they have a booger visible in their nose. and. I'm fairly certain that if they would have just looked into a mirror prior to walking into Home Depot, they would have made a quick change to their appearance. 
Part of the role of the law is to reveal to us just how far we have fallen from the purity that God requires. In Romans chapter 3, verses 19 to 20, we read, now what, And now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that the mouth, that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, it doesn't justify you, but it does give you an awareness of your own sinfulness. One of the ways that you can see that you are a sinner is when you look into the mirror of Scripture and see the commands of the Lord. And when Paul says at this point, through the law comes knowledge of sin, he is not talking about general knowledge of kind of the philosophical existence of evil. He is talking about your personal awareness of sin in your own heart. When the law is used lawfully, it can be deeply convicting as a tool in the hand of a gracious Savior to wake you up and say, you are not good. It, can give you, it cannot give you righteousness, but it can show you your unrighteousness. The law reveals our sin. And lastly, love fulfills the law. Not long after moving to New York, the city changed its official speed limit from 30 to 25 miles per hour unless otherwise marked. And the reason for that was very simple. They had done some various tests and realized, you know what, people seem to survive a lot more often if they're hit at 25 miles per hour in comparison to those pedestrians who are struck by a car moving 30 miles per hour. So they changed the law to 25 miles per hour unless otherwise marked in order to protect pedestrians. Now, I will say to you, all you have to do is walk around Manhattan or Queens or Brooklyn or anywhere for five minutes before you will realize that people are not following the law because they love you. They are not stopping at the red light because they love you. They are not keeping the intersection clear because they love you. They are not slowing down because they love you. They are doing it because it's the law and they don't want to get points on their license. Now, imagine that you are driving in your own neighborhood and that you know that you have your kids and your dog that have been playing out in your front yard. And so as you draw near, what are you going to do? You are going to slow down. You are going to look carefully. You are going to drive safely. Why? Because it's the law. No, of course not. You are going to do that because you love your kids. The heart of the law was always to love God and love neighbor. Paul explains it this way in Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commands, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Law does not necessarily promote love. In fact, most of the time, law does not produce love. But love necessarily fulfills law. Because for the Christian, it's not about the law, it's about Christ. We are not begrudgingly being constrained by legal regulations. Rather, we are being compelled by love for our Savior who first loved us. We're going to see with greater clarity as we make our way through 1 Timothy that these false teachers did not use the law to either see moral boundaries or to see their own spiritual inadequacies 
or to spur them on to love. And as such, they were using the law in a way that was not lawful. May that never be the case with us. May we be led by the Spirit to operate with love for God and with love for another that will be ever-increasing in fervor. And much more than that, may we never look to the law, but to Christ. Jesus is the one who much more clearly reveals to us the path of righteousness. Jesus is a much better mirror to reveal to us our own sin, and Jesus is the one who loved us, and he gave himself for us. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father God in heaven, we ask that today, as we've come to this very challenging text, this seemingly difficult text about the law and its relationship to us as New Covenant believers, God, I pray that you would help give us understanding and wisdom But God, I pray that it would foster in us not just a pharisaical understanding or awareness, but that it would produce instead a love for God and a love for others. May we be people marked by obedience produced by love from a pure heart. Father God, please help us to know you more, to love you more, and to live for you more. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen.